Hello. Hello, everyone. Oh my God, I think I really had too much coffee. <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome to Money Mondays with your host, Kalisha and Betsy. Yeah. Hi, guys. For today, how are you feeling? I'm excited. I, 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 I just get excited every time we're in here bringing value to people, teaching these things, you know, um, we're, we learn what we teach. So, um, I love talking about how we do what we do. And we're two guests. It's going to be like fantastic. Um, it's going to be so much fun having this conversation with them. Well, or even dive in, like, let's see, how was your weekend? Oh my God. Oh, I had a wonderful weekend since I had been gone so long for my kids, like two weekends in a row. It was really nice to get back and just spend some time with them. Um, a really big important thing that I, I believe in very strongly is um, that also Keston talks about, um, Keston Glasgow, about, you know, you work so hard and then you, you're doing it for your family, but you're also not paying attention to your family. So it's very important to find that balance. So um, yeah, I had a great weekend with them. We we celebrated Earth Day. We did a few things with some friends. It was fun. How about yours? Man, you know, it was a little bit stress, but we made it happen. Cause we, I think when whenever we have like properties like these that needs to be funded and stuck or a timeline, I think we get so stressed. Well, I get so stressed because I'm like, okay, we need to meet this deadline. And you know, so with orgies that we have now, I think, it's just trying to time crunch. So just trying to find time, having lenders being um, backing out last minute, which happens. We've been um, having that a couple, it, it happened all together in one week. It exactly. Was... And then you have weeks where we just get these funded back, back to back, no issues with ease. And it's really just a part of the process. You have good days, you have bad days. Um, it's really, really about it but no but we got this yeah we didn't got this <laughs> man i had too much coffee i'm so like i'm too hyperactive i feel like a kid <laughs> but without further ado you guys oh my god we are gonna welcome ida and joseph to the screen hi guys hello, hello. how are you guys doing Dandy. I know looking Joseph's face, he's like, I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you. But I saw your video that you posted. I, I loved it. I loved your video. He should go marketing. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about auction properties, right? That video was taken at a property that we bought at the auction. What? Wow. I'll discuss that more in a little bit. Yeah. Oh I'm excited. <laughs> no, oh gosh, let's get into it. <laughs> talk what none want to hear but guys before we even dive in betsy gets on my not i wouldn't say get on her she reminds me a lot about this that we need to say what's her disclaimer betsy the following information is for educational purposes only please do your own diligence we do not provide financial legal or professional advice we show you guys what we do what we learned and our experiences but we're not professionals so we also wanted to make sure we want to make sure always that 
you guys know this. Um, please, we always tell you, hey, this is what we know, but seek people. We do guide you to people that we know too. We have people that we go and talk to if we have questions. You know, we're not, we're not certified. Not certified. Just sharing our experience. That's it, you guys. And also, don't forget, um, you guys, if you're watching this on YouTube, just to subscribe to our channel. And later, when you're listening to this on any uh, podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, don't uh, remember to like. You know, like this, leave us a review. That's how we get bumped up to the top. So leave us a review, you guys. Know what you think, what you want to hear. And let's dive in. Tell us, who is Joseph and Isaac? Like, he was called. He <laughs> Would you like to start, Ivan? Sure. I'll start. <laughs> well, my name's Ivan Espinoza. I'm a full time real estate investor. Um, officially as of October of last year, um, I started, uh, yay, I left my W2 job and I'm officially full-time. Um, I started investing as a private money lender with, um, with actually Joseph. Uh, I was his, I was his private money lender. I, um, you know, I've known Joseph for a very long time. We're childhood friends and, and I've seen how he scaled up. And then at the end, um, this, this past couple of years, I was like, you know what? I need to get out of this rat race. I don't want to be stuck in a corporate America. Yeah, it's secure. It's, you have all the benefits that your parents teach you about. But I don't have the freedom. I don't have the freedom. I'm on my boss's time. And being a real estate investor, I have my old time. I have more time on my hands. I have more time to spend with my family. And I'm living the life on my terms not under my employer's terms. And so I had to get off that closed mindset and say, you know, what do I need to do to scale the capital that I currently have so that I can get out with this rat race? And the perfect person was, I knew Joseph. I trusted Joseph. I saw what he was doing. You know, he was, you know, buying whole, uh, he was buying multi-properties in different counties in LA. Um, I was privileged to see how he would buy and hold and, and flip and, and all that beautiful stuff that now I'm involved in. And I was like, you know what? I want to be, I want to be part of that. And I did ask him. And so I ended up being his private money lender and that's how my journey started. And I ended up knowing and having the privilege of being able to see the properties, being able to see what the rehabs were, if there was anything going on with the property. I was privileged to all of that uh, from the moment that he purchased the property to when he put it on the market. And I was also able to then obviously get my percentage of whatever my return was for investing in that project and kind of just doing it cycle, doing another cycle with him. And hey, I already have this capital. I'm still working, make my money grow. And that kind of just kept on revolving from one property for me being able to acquire rentals to be able obviously to be where I'm at now and now not be at the rent race. Now we've, um, we've ventured off and we've already acquired multiple fat, multiple assets, you know, real estate rentals, multifamily in, in different States. And because of real estate, I was able to leave my government job. And now I have, um, full-time, I'm full-time doing this boots on the ground and I love it. You know, I'm on my own time. We have, we have acquired, like I said, multiple rentals, flips, 
And then we've also been invested in multifamily. So I, I love my new, my new career because I, like I said, I have the freedom. I'm living on my terms, not anybody's terms. Yeah. And I have the time to spend with my kids. Like Betsy says, you know, you do it, you sacrifice yourself because you're doing it with an all-time all goal to spend time more with your kids and your family and your loved ones. And you don't get that in corporate America. But you have to be, you have to be willing and open to think out of the box. And the only way you're going to be willing and open to think out of the box, if you start surrounding yourself around like-minded people that see, that see that, okay, well, what is my goal? What is my freedom number? What is, what do I need to do to be here? And if you surround yourself around like-minded people, then you're able to not only grow yourself, but learn from one another and collaborate and make your goals and dreams come true fruition faster. And so I've been very privileged with Joseph being my my mentor and also uh, also being met, being mentored by other people uh, and also having the opportunity to be around like-minded people and I love it and I wouldn't I wouldn't change it I mean but I think I was telling Betsy uh wait go ahead Betsy where you got finish your thought I was saying like I was telling Betsy when I first met you guys in person and you scared your story I was it was I was mind blown we're <laughs> like Ida was like okay Joseph I'm gonna retire in two years but when she didn't retire she's like give me three more years and she's still so to hear it now like it's a, it's amazing yeah I heard a little bit on the last weekend you know but um what Kalisha tells me sometimes I'm just like I need to hear the whole story because um, it sounds really really interesting now you said you got your foot in the door by being a private money lender well how would you recommend people that are in that position like you were in a really good W-2 job where they have some um, funds that they want to use to start investing and to become an investor ultimately? Obviously, um, do contact a CPA, you know, so that you can get legal representation in regards to what your best avenue would be, um, depending on whatever whatever entity you work with, you may have the ability to get a personal loan from your current employer. And obviously the benefit about with that is that not only are you getting a personal loan, depending on the entity, you're able to earn the interest back to your own account. But if you're going to be able to pull that, say for example, $50,000, and you're going to be a private money lender, that private money lender normally gives you double digit returns depending on the agreement that you guys come up with. So not not only are you getting double digit returns, but you're you're also getting three percent from this the entity. So you can always repay it within three to five years. But you're you have control over your money, not the stock market, not Bitcoin, not anything out there. Like you have that control to know where you're going to move your money to and how you're going to make it scale up for you. Um, that's um, <laughs> Joseph. So like, what I want you to share is like. How you, how did you, like, first of all, introduce yourself, but how did you get Ida to be your private client vendor? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, uh, my background is, is in real estate. I've been in real estate since 1995. And prior to that, I did have a corporate job at Bank of America. And I work in the real estate loan servicing department. And I got to see exactly what happens after a realtor hands somebody their keys. 
all the things that were going behind the scenes, the, the, the tax department, the insurance, and all of the adjustable rate mortgages changes, and then the fixed rate products, and then legal, and all these different fundamentals of servicing like that, you know, as a consumer, if you have a home, you may be buying a property with Wells Fargo. And then a couple of years later, you're making a mortgage payment to someone else. And so how that secondary market chain, you know, sells the paper and all these things are going on behind the scenes. I, I learned deed of trust. I studied notes. It was all part of my job and it was nice to be able to get involved. But at that time, I didn't know I was going to go into real estate. It was just a job to me. But I was fascinated by it. And there was a gentleman in our in our office that uh, eventually would become a real estate salesperson. He would share with me his escapades. And I thought I was very fascinated with it. I thought, you you get you get paid to help somebody get a home. Like that's 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 a pay that's a career. And so I actually ventured into it and I quit I quit my job. It was like May, May 17th, uh, 1995. And it, it's and I'm sure that I then will share with you, just kind of live with that date because that was a date you kind of mentally and physically made that separation and you're about to embark in something that's so completely unknown and you're excited, but you're scared and you're going through all these different emotions. And I went through that a very long time ago. So when I got into real estate, I became a real estate salesperson and I was doing your typical real estate responsibilities. I was helping buyers and sellers, you know, sell homes and buy homes. And I would always try to get a little bit more information from the loan officers as to how I could put a deal together. And eventually I would meet a processor and that person was giving me all the ins and outs as a processor. So I started to learn a lot more fascinating details. Eventually I would learn who and what an underwriter was. And then I would make it a point to meet underwriters. And I would always make it a point to meet underwriters outside of the work they load. They were going to a conference, they were going to a meetup. If there were in any kind of social circle, I just wanted to get close enough to say, hey, how do you piece this kind of scenario together? And how would you look at this particular aspect of your business? Yeah. What I'm trying to do is just make myself a better real estate agent. And then you meet people, you gravitate to, and it, it's like you know, now you're in that circle and then you meet, you meet loan officers, processors, you meet other people that are involved, everything from underwriting to the brokers that own the company. And then you start learning all these things that go on behind the scenes. And that actually makes you a better investor, not a realtor. You know, if you're a wholesaler, it makes you a better wholesaler because you understand finance. So with that said, after a while, I became a real estate broker myself and I had some people gravitate to me that eventually we all had a, a real estate company. And my background, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. So we started in Los Angeles, California, and we did really well there. But there was something that I learned right after Robert Kiyosaki's book, Robert, um, Robert Kiyosaki's initial book, Real Estate, not Real Estate Riches, I'm sorry, the, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? There's a whole series. It's a very fundamental book because it teaches you just why and how to invest. It's giving you certain fundamentals, then you have to pick up other pieces based on what excites you. So I read The Real Estate Riches by Dolph D. Roos, which was an excellent book. It compares real estate investing to stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and other asset classes. And it was always kind of showing like, this is why real estate's good. So I always knew that it was really good, but as a salesperson, I was just trying to get a commission check. So I just want to help somebody get into a home so I can get paid. And if I could learn a little bit about the process and enjoy what I was doing, then I wasn't really working. I was just kind of helping people and get a paycheck. And that went on for years. Eventually, 
I was that guy that was wearing the Armani suit, driving the Mercedes Benz, and I go pick up my customer that like worked at Target. And I was like, okay, there's a there's a disconnect there because eventually I would I would take the role of representing investors. Investors are interesting people because they're wearing like shorts and a t-shirt and mismatched socks. They haven't showered. They don't comb their hair. They have a hat on. They're driving a 20 year old pickup truck and they're worth three, four, five million dollars. Yeah. So what I would, my first experience with representing a real estate investor, I remember he said, this is what I'm looking for. If you can find it, you know, give me a call. And I put him into, um, contact with the property. It's like, this is a good deal. And I says, why? And he, he wanted to write, me to write up an offer. And this is as my experience as a real estate agent. So I was just a real estate agent. I did have a license as a broker. So I was a licensed real estate broker. And we, we're going to write up this offer. And the listing agent says, well, I need you to give me proof of funds if you're going to write up a cash offer. I'm like, okay, how do you do proof of funds? Normally I would call my loan officer and say, hey, give me a prequel. Uh -huh. So I remember calling him and saying, hey, I need some uh, information on your I guess bank statement or something. I almost felt bad asking because I thought it was like privileged information. But he said, yeah, come over. Because, you know, this is before internet. This is a, I'm dating myself here. But he ends up sending over. Uh, we end up meeting for coffee and he ends up giving me the originals to a bank statements that had over $2 million. And this was like 1997. It was a phenomenal amount of money back then. It's awesome today. But back then, it's probably 10 times what it was. But I realized that everything that I thought I knew was incorrect. Everybody that I thought was well off wasn't. And people that you kind of just didn't think were well off were either emotionally happy, they were physically rewarded, or they were also financially and spiritually blessed. So it started shifting my mindset. And I started eventually making it over to representing investors. It was completely different. They were, they were buying houses based on numbers, non-emotional purchases. And, you know, you fast forward 20 years later and then I'm the guy that, you know, I took a shower for the, for your live stream. But, uh, <laughs> like from the Abbey suit to a pickup truck right there. It's like 300,000 miles. And that's what I normally drive. I've got the Mercedes still, and I've got all these other tools and tool toys. But the reality is that I, I dress down for work. I don't need to be in a, it's a, it's a different environment when you're in the service industry. So, but you know, coming from, from LA County, I started to learn a little bit of the leverage principles. And I realized that if we went into other counties and for people that are not from Los Angeles or the California market, they might not recognize it, but like San Bernardino County, Riverside County, these are counties that you can get much more bang for your buck as far as being a homeowner, as far as being a investor. So we were going to areas where investors were buying homes for $25,000, $55,000, which seems unheard of today. Mm -hmm. But those homes today are worth half a million dollars. And mm -hmm. we're, we're buying many of them, fixing them up. Some of my investors were buying houses and renting them. Some houses were being flipped for profit. So I really was embedded and I learned all of the facets of what they were doing by just watching and representing them. I wasn't even asking questions because at that time I hadn't made the decision to become an investor. And you would think that I would, right? You would. So assimilated in that environment and I was really happy representing people. I kind of realized that one of the things that I have and to this day is I really like investor relations and I really enjoy underwriting and analysis. 
And when you start looking at all of the tools and information that we have available today, it's almost too much information. You're bombarded with everything that's available at a moment's notice. And in reality, if you just step into the fundamentals, it's about relationships and people and connecting with individuals that can give you some ideas of a collaborative nature. And then eventually, you're not having to beat up your, you beat yourself up to get deals. Deals are coming to you because people want to help you and they gravitate to you. So our last two deals that I, Dan and I are part of came from our property manager. They knew mm-hmm. what to do, the betterment that we're doing for the community by improving the area while we're renting out these properties. And they were not listed for sale. They came to us and said, hey, we need somewhere to take these down as an investor either all cash or hard money or prank money, whatever you do, but I know you're going to close. And so it was really neat to be a part of that. Prior to that though, our other two properties were auction properties. So we'll, we'll talk about and discuss those as well. Excited to hear about. I know, I'm so excited. And so like, uh, just to finish up on that part, what, what ended up happening is using leverage. We went from LA to San Bernardino and Riverside County. And then eventually I would relocate to Kern County, which is central California. Uh, oil and gas and agriculture are the biggest economies there. And it, this was an area right around 2009, 2010, where you could buy a beautiful home on the west side for like $150,000, which again now seems unheard of because properties at last myself checking were four fifty, five hundred fifty thousand dollars $550,000, which yeah. is still cheaper than LA. But we were leveraging bank money, private money, and whatever capital we had to buy more properties. And I think that there's some things that I'll share as well, like, you know, do, doing flips, you know, should you flip a property, should you hold a property? And and I have, um, you know, experience with both. And we also wholesaled and we also covered and we did a variety of different things. I didn't even know that you guys wholesaled, which is, that is, that's amazing. Yeah, we, we've, um, most recently, I think we wholesaled one property last year. Mm-hmm. It was because we now live in Texas. We've broke I missed it. What was that? I said it's diversification. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's you know, we, I love it. We made the decision in 2019 to relocate our company outside of California. It wasn't specific to Texas. We saw that it was not a business friendly state, and it's not a landlord friendly state and we moved right before they had statewide uh, rent control in the whole state of california and it's always been a very highly regulatory and highly taxed state and we were we did very well so i don't want to give the impression that you need to go to a republican state or a landlord friendly state or a you know business friendly environment to succeed I knew people that were leaving LA and going to Bakersfield that were successful. And I knew people that were going from Bakersfield to LA that were equally successful. But what happens is that as you get a little bit more wiser and you start to develop some fundamentals, you realize that it's not just about making money, but it's about making a difference in addition to whether or not you're even welcomed in that environment. So Texas is completely different. So is Tennessee. We have some exposure to Georgia and also to Florida. And there's many other landlord-friendly states, but this is the area that we've kind of decided that we were going to come and venture to. Well, I, I love the landlord-friendly states. <laughs> yeah. Easy. Yeah. Well, easy. And I think it, it, it has a lot to do with what is your exit as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
that has a lot to do and like a fix and flipper would if you're gonna fix it flip then some yeah counties in california will be fantastic amazing yeah the numbers in california are, are great if you're going to flip but yeah. it just so it just depends what your what your exit is which even makes me like after you transition from california to texas um one apart from california being a not so business friendly what were some of the reasons that made you gravitate toward texas and then expanded into newer markets as well that's a very good question and you know when i was uh working in in and in investing in california and let's say i was going to do a flip i wasn't looking at the geography uh, so much i wasn't looking at the demographics as much I wasn't looking to see if there was any large scale companies that were coming in that were going to be bringing in workers and, and was there going to be a new hospital opening or an expansion project or how about like maybe something like a warehouse, like now we hear Amazon distribution centers opening up and they bring an influx of direct and indirect uh, jobs for the community. Like it doesn't have to be Amazon. It could be any warehouse. And so we weren't looking at all that because you're in and you're out, right? But what happened was that as you start to keep rentals and you start to hold on to that passive income so that you can actually pay your bills and then eventually you know, you're making 300 here, 400 on that one, 600 on that one, then eventually you have $4,000 a month and that's an actual salary. And I'm talking net after expenses. At some point in time, it makes it easier to make that, that ch choice to say, okay, well, I have enough to support myself. I'm going to go ahead and exit my W-2 job. Kind of like what what we prepared for Ivan to do last year, and other people that kind of say, "Well, I'm going to do an Airbnb. I'm going to do a, a multifamily investment. I'm going to do a variety of different things." So when we started to hold properties longer, like five years, one of the first things that we were doing now is we were looking at states that had things that 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 were definitely business friendly and landlord friendly but also that the, there was jobs there. And then what was the pay for that demographic? You know, because if you've got a average income of $25,000 and you're coming in with a $1,200 rental, you are not going to statistically be able to increase those rents because the pool of the people that live there can afford that area. That doesn't make it a bad area to invest. It just depends on what you're looking for. But we were looking to be able to increase rents as needed, whether it was annually or every two, three, four years, because mm -hmm. especially if you were doing a long-term hold five years, 10 years out, for example. And so we found that there were certain large metropolitan areas like Dallas, Fort Worth, your Houston, your Austin. That's that's hot right now. Listen. Yeah. The states, you know, and so, and, and then we saw the same in, in uh, Tennessee, uh, Nashville, Knoxville. And so we have a little bit of a different pattern than some of the investors follow. And um, some people, and everybody has their own opinion. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I certainly don't want to say this is mine is better, but I know that what has worked for us has been that we have been generally looking for areas where there is path of progress. Where we're going to cash flow today, not later, where we're going to buy a property for significantly less and we're going to make money on the acquisition, not upon the resale. Any money that we get on the resale is just, you know, dessert. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that we're looking for is 
we, we want to go through areas that are going to be or are experiencing gentrification. Yeah. And so there is an expansion of a city like Dallas where all of a sudden people can't afford Dallas anymore. And what do they do? They move out. And what if you were in that area and you've had that as a rental three, four years ago when it was 210000 and now three years later, it's worth 500000 You were cash flowing when you bought it three years ago. Not only are you still cash flowing, but now you've added to $300,000 in net worth an equity and what if you had 10 properties you know you could you could define a path where five properties at two three hundred thousand dollars in net equity over the course of five years will instantly putting you in the millionaire or multi-million dollar status the other thing was what do you do with that money you know it's like okay i'm gonna invest i'm gonna take a rental what am i gonna do am i just gonna hold it on forever is it gonna be a legacy property that gets passed on to the children what, you know, what, what is it that your exit strategy is? And for us, we wanted to, at first, we were just buying houses, fixing them up, holding them up for a little while, and two, three years later, selling them later for something larger. So we'd sell a house, buy a duplex. We'd sell a duplex, buy a fourplex. Man, you got to scale. Absolutely. And, and then we met, um, we had the opportunity of investing in multifamily. That was a game changer for us because now all of a sudden we're invested in our current investors in many projects here in Texas that are anywhere from $16 million acquisition prices to as high as $78 million. And it was a pool of investors that invested in the form of syndication and everybody just got together, kind of think of it as crowdsourcing and everybody funding this for a larger good as far as buying something bigger. So. You know, when we're investing in these deals, they'll have minimums. Some of those established minimums will change from time to time or where the project is or what type of asset it is. It could be a mobile home park, it could be RV, it could be storage, it could be multifamily. But generally speaking, today's times are about $50,000 minimums. So we would take investments from selling a flip that we bought maybe three years ago that we've already gotten our money back through a cash out refinance three years ago. And now we're just going through the action of selling the investment so that we can capitalize on the equity and turn it into liquid and then re-deploy that into multifamily. But so, came to mind when, when you were saying that. Well, was that? He, he just dropped some gems in terms of when you, you build equity in the home mm-hmm. and you guys would resell it in two to three years. You have persons who have built equity in their home. They can literally pull out a HELOC and also lend, and they don't want to sell the property. Exactly. So the HELOC could also be another source of funding for her private money lenders. Or again, do the cash out refine. Or that. Yeah, but in regards to the equity line of credit and also in regards to like when you buy the property, you fix it, flip it, and then you get your money back. And then kind of like what Joseph said, we came up with the strategy to where um, we had a few rentals and we had a few flips and we had a few rentals and, flips. and within that same time frame where we did get the capital, we would redeploy it into a multifamily um, syndication group. And then obviously you would get a negative K1 from that, which benefited me at that time when I first started as a private money lender because I still had my regular government job and I still had my, my salary. And I was, I was in the border of like, am I going to have to pay taxes? What am I going to do to offset that rental income? So then 
we kind of, uh, Joseph uh, helped me calculate like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is the strategy that we're going to do. And this is what we're going to implement so that you don't have to pay taxes. And it's just like I said, what works for us might not work for somebody else. But since I started my venture as a real estate investor, I, as of this day, I had not had to pay taxes. I'm negative. Way negative. I'm going to have to do a whole other episode on that because that's so much value. Like that's so valuable, valuable information to know because a lot of us are doing, are trying to get to that point, you know, where we own a lot of assets, but also people who own a lot of assets also have to know how to offset the taxes. Story how they kind of structure everything, like especially when Joseph is so strategic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hearing that. <laughs> I have three different CPAs that I said XC because I need to know what do I need to exactly. do to offset X amount of taxes. Yeah. That is so smart because then you have three different opinions. Yeah, that's yeah. very important. It's very important to have a great team of CPAs and because you tell them what your ultimate goal is and then the CPA then allows you to say, okay, what did you purchase the property for? And they start doing their numbers and then they tell you, okay, what do I need to do? And then it kind of just reassures you that the your ultimate goal, you're not going to have to pay taxes because you already had that CPA review it. And it's kind of like whenever we would get into another project, especially while I was still employed it was kind of like okay like where am i going to be at am i going to be over am i going to and then we would talk to the cpa and he would always assure me like nope you're doing it right you guys are following this particular structure and it's working for you so at the end of the year you don't have to worry your your income is not going to be affected you're not going to have to pay any taxes so that even gave me more peace of mind so it's kind of having the team in play with your cpas because if you don't then you know some people say like well maybe i'm going to have to pay too many taxes i don't want to even start in that but if you have the structure, if you have the team, then, you know, why not have control over your own money and not edit, not have edit someone else control your money for you? Because we tend to go yeah. backwards. We wait until it's tax season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wait then to find out, okay, what do I need to do to rip for like, no, when you just yeah. have- But even, that, even having a 401k, I mean, it's still being invested. It's just, you don't have any control. Exactly. You don't have any control. And the, like, you, as you know, the, the market fluctuates. So then you can have a high income right now. Tomorrow it could drop. But if it, it's just sitting there. So if you do end up, like in my case, I left my government job. So now I have the privilege to transfer my traditional IRA into a self-directed IRA, which I, now I have more, more money to invest. And then I have control as to what projects I want to invest in. I could be a private money lender for whatever other entities I choose to. And I could get that money to grow in less time than what it would be in the stock market the next, what, 30 years? Because I still have a long way to go to be able to dip into that money. So why don't I want to scale my money at my terms? I love that. My money, my terms. (laughs) Yeah, it's my money. I worked for it. (laughs) And direct as I please with it. (laughs) I'm obviously following IRS guidelines, you know. Well, you know, 
one of the things is that like you don't know what you don't know right so it's not like they teach us fico in school and if they taught us fico in high school like would we even really pay attention like that yes. we wouldn't understand how important that is exactly um, and in college we're so busy like going to college and studying and partying that you're not really paying attention to a lot of life lessons that you're about to experience in retrospect you would have done things different but in mm -hmm. reality you wouldn't have done things any different because if you go back to that point in time and made that decision with armed with the information you had at that time you would have made the same path choice what what we want to do though is empower your, your listeners and just share with them golden nuggets things that we have actually been able to employ and and what we're doing that's worked for us and then obviously you know additional information can ensue but it just begins that, that okay, you know what, I'm going to learn about this 401k. I didn't know about HELOC. What's a HELOC? How do I invest with this? And and then that's kind of a lead into like one of the topics of discussion for today is, of course, you know, buying probate property. I mean, uh, buying auction properties. And there is a lot of sources out there. And I remember when I was talking about earlier that like there's so much information. And I think that sometimes you gravitate to someone that teaches you one aspect. Other times you're looking for different avenues and then you kind of find one that works for you. Other times you're just doing everything and you're going to see what you end up actually sticking to. And so I had the luxury of being able to see these investors buy at the public auction. And it was one of the most freaky things that you could do at the beginning because it's like 35, 55, 55, I mean, you're what property was that? They didn't even say the address. It was some number. What number? Where'd you get that number? How did it? And you're just sitting there going, wow, I'm watching this whole thing and I'm realizing I'm never going to be able to part of this. And it's not like that at all. It's just once you start studying it and you understand it and you start practicing, eventually you can become really good at it. It's just like riding a bicycle. But I'll give you an example. One of my, one of my investor partners, it's a husband and wife team. I love them to death. But they wanted to invest with me and partner with me. And to this day, we have multiple projects across state lines. And I'm very happy for that. But the way we did some mentorship training is we went to a general sales, um, a general merchandise sales auction, an actual auction where they're going to they're gonna auction off a, a desk or a carpet or maybe a car or something of that nature, something insignificant like a table lab yeah. to be like some fine china. Um, what I then did is like, okay, I want you to pick something that you're willing to buy at a ridiculously low price, something that might be worth $400 that you're willing to buy it for 40. Like you'd walk out with this for 40. And so they go through the whole motions, you get your number and you're ready to bid and you start freaking out because by the time you raise your paddle to bid, they're on to the next item because it's what? fast. I was insane. It is at the beginning. So by going there, you're going to exercise that muscle of being able to understand how to pay attention and look at the cues and watch the psychology of the investors. Eventually, you get so good that you can tell who's a homeowner, who's a seasoned investor, you know how much money they have, and more than likely, you're going to collaborate on a deal. And so these are the things that you can pick up by being in a live auction. Now, in my example of an alive auction, so I, you know, there's people listening from Florida to California here. So the rules are might be a little different, you know, in Massachusetts, or they might be in, in Arizona, but most of the time properties that someone is not paying the mortgage on eventually will become a foreclosure. And one of the process that goes on behind the scenes develop depending on what type of financing they have. 
will determine how they end up going to foreclosure. So for example, if it's a FHA loan and a Bank of America lent on it, what will happen is Bank of America has the loan and they're not the ones that they're the ones that are not getting money to the, the, the payments, I should say. They're the, they're the ones that are going to be initiating the foreclosure and taking it all the way to the public auction where an investor will bid and successfully win if the price is right for both parties. When that happens, you're... If it's an FHA deal, will depend if it's a, well, there's conventional, there's VA, and there's also FHA. But at the foreclosure, many times you're buying a property, and as soon as you walk away, you're done. You're the owner as of that particular time. Other times, it reverts back to the government. Normally, this amount, like, for someone who's completely new with the option, they may get a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> When these properties are selling an auction, is it that it's the mortgage balance that they start the bidding at? Or how do, how do they normally start the pricing point for those properties? It'll vary across the board. Sometimes you'll see that there is a $185,000 outstanding balance and they'll start the bidding at $35,000. It does not make any sense. Then there's other scenarios where they're owed $185,000 and the starting bid is two hundred ten. Now, in a case like that, if I knew that the property was $400,000 in value and they started at 210, I'm still going to bid on it, right? And that's almost 52, 53 cents on the dollar. But what if that property really was 200,000 and they start at 210? It makes no logical sense, but you never know what's going on behind the scenes at the bank and all the fees and everything that's been assessed. And that bank might properly be insured. So when they foreclose on that property, they didn't lose a darn thing. They've been filed a claim with their private mortgage insurance or whatever entity behind the scenes to recover their funds. Then eventually that property gets listed for sale with a realtor in that area that subsequently becomes a bank-owned property. But now it's either fixed up and being sold at regular price or it might be sold as is and it's not financeable and an investor buys that property and an investor, it could be someone that is a professional seasoned investor that buys multiple properties, or it could be an investor that simply is not going to live in the property and is buying the property as a rental or to flip. That's an investor as well. It's the same terminology. You so, have like money up front. Like how, how, how does someone get into buying an auction property? So one of the easiest ways to buy a auction property is to buy it online and there's a couple of reasons why if you go and you if you come with me to a public auction and we're bidding on that prop property right then and there whatever you win you're successfully the winner you're you want it for a hundred thousand dollars you're buying a hundred percent cash right then and there it's either in the form of cashier's checks or cash or a combination of both Depending you have to have the capital you have to have it on hand and you have to have the checks in different denominations because it could be over a dollar and they're not going to allow you to go to the bank and say, oh, I need to go get. No, you need to have different denominations. So I had the privilege to go to a live auction. That was one of my first things I did after I went to Texas because uh, I had told Joseph, just like he explained to you, like, I'm here, like in the cartoons or going up, go, you know, like doing this little thing. Right. And then by the time you've been, everything's gone. 
So I had the privilege to be in the court steps and see how it works. And different counties do it different things. Like Joseph says, it's either by the address of the property, it's either by the parcel of the property, or however they record it. And whoever is there is the one that has the opportunity to bid. You don't have a little palette. It's either eye gesture, hand gesture, lip gesture, and that's kind of how you get it. And once the once they say, okay, final call, it's your property. And once they go down the list of pop, of additional properties at the end, you meet with, with the person who had the property listed and you're like, okay, what's my total? And you hand them the cashier checks and that's it. The property's yours. The moment we get the property, we call the insurance company and we insure the property. Cause what about if we get the property at 1102, 1103 California? First thing we do is we call our, our insurance company and say, Hey, our property, we got this property, ABC in can you please insure it? You know, and then we so get are, you guys don't even see these properties. There are some properties. So it's, it goes all over the place. Like sometimes you don't have access to the property and sometimes you don't have legal access, meaning that you're not supposed to go and you end up going anytime you, you, you end up going anyways. Like if it's vacant, it's obviously vacant. You want to peek around in the windows. Like everybody has different, you know, opinions. Um, different states are different too. You know, states, states that have gun ownership are calling <laughs> states that you want to step on somebody's property because even the neighbors come out to protect them. And, and so we will generally take a look and see if the property is occupied. And if we know it's occupied, then we're either going to send a letter out or we're going to try out some other form. There's skip tracing companies out there that where you can get their information and their phone number for a fee. And, you know, and there's all, again, there's a lot of information, there's different things that you can do. But bottom line is there are a lot of properties that you are able to go and step in and get a good idea, especially if they're maybe properties that were left open or vandalized and you're going in there and you're like, okay, I know it needs a lot of work, but how much work? It's $40,000 and this thing's worth 200,000 and I'm comfortable with buying it for 50, 60 cents on the dollar, then I'm going to have a number that is going to be my maximum bid. And that's what I'm going to go to the auction prepared to bid. If my maximum is, let's say a hundred thousand, I'm not going to show up with a hundred thousand because what if it ends up selling for one or two for 2000, I may not want to like flat bid. So I'm going to go with a little bit more money. And if I go with 110,000, what about the next property? What about the other one? What about the five properties I was looking at that day? And I'd like to see if I can get them all at my price. So you're going to be prepared and you might walk in with five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars or in all areas. Like if you were in an orange County, California, and there was an auction, you know, you're walking in with millions of dollars in, in cashier's checks because the price points are higher. Right. But even with this, um, I, what I'm curious about is the money part of it. Because okay. <laughs> if you're getting a private money lender, um, normal, like most persons are aware that if they give you their money, their money is secured, it's protected by some. Yeah. You're going in and you're just bidding. You don't know what you're getting. You have no clue. Like, how do you, so I think maybe this could be like a two-part question. Mm. How do you get that private lender to be so comfortable with giving you that cash? And how, is there any protection? How do you guys structure that? Well, it, like we've always been told, like, you got to know, trust the person. So having a relationship um, is really, it's key. Because it's like, you're going to, you're, you know, the person, you know, what the person's background, you know, their track record, you know, what they've been up to. 
So it's like they're not going to ruin their reputation over, you know, a couple of hundreds of dollars just because, oh, you know, whatever. There are there are probabilities like everything's risky. Like you said, everything's risky. But if you know, like and trust a person, then the transition makes it so much easier. And and if you have that relationship with the person and you've already been you've already um, dealed with that that investor as a private money lender, then you can scale up and say, okay, well now um, I have an, an additional capital. I know you might not have a project right now, but I have this money. And then most of the investors that we know, they know that we go to the auctions, you know, on a monthly basis. So then they'll say, you know what? I have X amount of money here, take it to the auction. And then, but we we'll also do it. We also obviously have a contract with them as we how what percentage we're going to be paying them. But it all starts with a relationship. They know us, they trust us, and they know our background. And that's, that's we're kind of, and then the word of mouth. It's all word of mouth. Like, hey, you know what? I did this with this investor. I got this return and I got my capital back. And now I'm doing, and it's kind of just going again and again and again. So in hesitance, it's telling people, telling people what, you, what are you doing? Uh, go ahead, um, Joseph. Well, um, so some of the investors that I have, partnered with us in regards to going to the auction and, and using, for example, a combination of, let's say, our money and the investor's money. Um, when we work with one person or a group of people for a prolonged period of time, at some point in time, we're establishing a new LLC. And a, this new li limited liability company can be formed in which, let's say, I then or, and myself are the general partners running the operations, mm -hmm. but our investors are our limited partners. And they're part of the entity. And so they're actually funding and loaning the entity money of which they co-own. And so now we're taking out the cashier's checks to go bid on that property and we're successful. Now what will happen is we will actually collateralize that money to that particular property. Uh, so in an agency is a promissory note. It is a promissory note, but they're they're promising the it's the LLC that's promising to repay them. If it's a loan, because when you put money into an LLC, if you have an expectation that you're going to get the money back, then it's a loan. If you don't have an expectation that you're going to get the money back because that money is going to be used for operations or for other things inside the LLC, then it's just a capital contribution as a member of the LLC. And that's the actual appropriate terminology. And the only reason I know that is because I do have three CPAs and we're asking questions all the time. <laughs> Many times we're asking the same question to the three different people just to see if we get three vague answers yeah. or three specific answers. And we feel more comfortable saying, hey, we've got three CPAs that are guiding us in this direction. Mm -hmm. Now, it might be expensive for a lot of people to start off with three CPAs, right? But most all uh, attorneys will give you a half an hour free consultation. And that's at the level of litigation. Can you imagine? <laughs> Freeness. <laughs> you can get free advice from a CPA once you feel comfortable with a CPA or an enrolled agent. So it's a CPA, is a certified, you know, uh, um, a C certified <laughs> public accountant. Yeah. Then you've got the EA, nice. which is designation, which is a enrolled agent. And then you have tax preparers. And it doesn't mean that you're going to demean someone who doesn't have an EA or a CPA, but who is that clientele for that individual? Many times that clientele is a blue collar worker. 
stuff, not someone that has a business or owns real estate or has the complexities of the real estate environment an entrepreneur. So you're definitely looking for someone that has that information that they could guide and you're not meeting with them on April 14th. <laughs> you're actually getting and seeking advice throughout the year and you're doing proactive consultations and you're saying, hey, I've got these five houses and we're going to sell them. Uh, which one am I going to sell first in what order? And maybe I have to go from these three this tax year and these other two next tax year. And so you can take that into account as well. But coming back to your question, you know, that is one form of being able to create an LLC with your partner investor and actually being able to invest in a auction property. There's a couple of other ways too. Um, you can pool funds, you know, like. Well, one second, Josie. So for those who are, who may feel like this is a lot of information, just to summarize what Rosa was saying, because I understand it. And I was always curious just about the money part. What he's saying is, if you're looking to buy properties using auction and you're worried about the money to get the money to go to the auction, one way is first you need to let persons know what you're doing, right? You need to also, if you're completely new, find someone who's doing it. So at least they can be your partner in essence. And then if someone has the money, you get an LLC and that person will be a capital partner. Once you close out on that property, you now collateralize, um, that money and attach it to the, that same property that you guys um, purchased at auction, right? Yes, unless it was purchased in the LLC, of which now both the members of are the owners of it, and then they would have whatever agreement that the LLC has. For example, if you were my investor on a project and I wanted to give you, you know, twelve percent return, for example, well, you might be twelve percent owner of the LLC, and I'm eighty-eight percent owner, and we're going to buy one property and sell it and subsequently go ahead and dis or disperse the capital in that manner. So that's one way you could do it. And obviously in a scenario like that, when the money comes back, the investor, unless the investor needed access to that capital in a short-term period of time, more than likely that money is available for another investment. So this could be and is a long-term strategy and a long-term acquisition strategy. Of course, selling a property as a flipper has a high taxable event, right? And in some cases, depending on what state you live, you could be paying as high as 38%. But did you know that if you hold it for one year or longer and you rent it out, it drops significantly to 15 to 22%. So just by holding it for one year. So it, you know, we, we, we navigated from being flippers to wholesalers to then buy and hold. Now, flipping is a good though. I'm not saying it's bad. Flipping makes you money and capital for you to continue to do other things. So when you, and, and obviously for someone that's starting off and they're going to do their first investment in real estate, or they're going to go ahead and get a private money lender to invest in real estate, going to the auction is probably not going to be their first deal, right? But you can still buy an auction property, just not live. So what happens is that they foreclose on the property. It goes back to the bank. The bank wants to sell this property and get this off of their books. They want to liquidate that debt. But they also know that there might be some looming issues with the property. There might be no roof. There might be a safety concern. There might be a crack in the foundation. And they don't want to knowingly sell this to a homeowner because they're not going to be able to get the financing. And they're not looking for a homeowner who may not have the funds statistically to do the repairs but an investor or a company 
or a community LLC or some type of government entity is who they're going to go after and try to sell this. So what they do, and this is why a lot of the public doesn't see these properties on realtor.com or on, on Zillow, you know, is because they don't show up there because then it's masked, it's mass, it's to the public. But if you knew the websites, you could actually go. Now, there's a lot of websites and some websites that are good in Arizona are not good in New Mexico. It just depends. But one of the ones that's the most recognizable happens to be auction.com. So I'm going to use them as an example. Yeah. Yeah. So auction.com, you can go in right now and take a look at your county and then just click all of the properties and only look for the ones that are available online only. They're online auctions only. You're going to go from like 3,000 in a large county of like Los Angeles to like six. Yeah. And those are the six that you're going to look at. I'm doing that. <laughs> you can actually go in and bid. And the cool thing about those is that you bid and you go through an escrow. And you get anywhere from 14 business days to 28 business days, depending on the auction site. And you can actually close. So now you have time to secure your funding with a private money lender. You're going to be able to record a need to drop in that position. And you're now buying a property significantly less. A lot of people didn't even know about it. And many of the investors that are going to the public auction are not paying attention to the online auction. Especially when you get really good, you can see which ones are on online on the same day as the live auction. And so then you're bidding on the online auction. All the professional investors are in person at the live auction. <laughs> One plus I would back Betsy, like, I must do auction. <laughs> yeah, and then I was thinking that I was like, the numbers are not hard to figure out. <laughs> the, even now he's like, <laughs> got. 14 and average 14 to 29 days. A lot of persons don't know that. Like they just see auction and they just think, okay, I have to go on. It's the same day. I don't get to see the property. I don't have time to get the money. Mm -hmm. Um, but like these are the little things that a lot of persons don't share. And I'm so glad that you guys go into details about it because it's I didn't even know that. Yeah, so it's always very important to raise capital. Never, never stop raising capital. So if you know different strategies, like start building that partnership with someone, tell them what the benefits are, and then you can form an LLC with that partner. So when you do have either an online auction or a live auction, you know which partner is willing to um, go venture that direction as if, as, if, as if you don't if you don't have currently have a flip. So it's always important. So if you already have an existing relationship with someone, but you don't have a project, say, hey, you know, I go to the auctions. Why don't you start working on building your LLC? And then you, you, we will we'll come up with a contract. And at least the LLC is already established. It's already funded. So that way it's already all, it has a, a structure. So that way, um, do you have, when you, when you create the LLC and then the money goes into a bank account, you have actually set up a bank account as well. Yeah, the partner, the partnering have access because you've established that partnership. You just like Joseph said, you either a certain percentage of ownership depending on 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 what you agreed on. So then they fund they fund the the LLC account, and then they know that when we go ready to go either on online or on or live auction, the funds are already there. We kind of just call the investors, say, hey, you know what, we're going to do an online auction or we're going to do a live auction. 
we're looking at these potential properties. These are, this is our research. This is what we figured out we would be able to get it for and what the profit's going to be. But the funds are already there. See, another giant. Are, are all the auction sites paid? Well, all the auction information by law has to be made available to the public for free. What happens is that when you're looking at all the data online or in person at the courthouse, it can be overwhelming at first. But when you pick a particular county that you're, and many people feel comfortable investing where they live. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a good idea unless you happen to live in a good area that has good deals, but we tend to do that. And so I'm going to just say that if you learn how to invest yeah. out distance yeah. and you treated your business that way, then you would run up and you would create systems so that you're not involved as much because your time should be with investors and analysis and reaching out to property management companies and creating and bridging relationships with realtors and the people that are in your team and also having opportunities to talk to your CPA to talk to an attorney and to get information and advice so you can become a better real estate entrepreneur. But there are some sites like in Texas, for example, one of the bigger ones that a lot of investors really enjoy is Roddy's foreclosure system service. And, and it's R O D D Y S Roddy's has a subscription that is anywhere from $20 to a hundred dollars a month, depending on what County. So like a large County, like Dallas is going to give you the highest one. And we live in an area where the counties that we look at, they're about $35, $40 a month. And, and what happens though, is it, I'm buying time. I just go on, I log in, I see pictures, I see the data, I see the information. I know the, the names, the banks, the dates, and even the times that they're going to be auctioned off at because they set time. It can't <laughs> yeah. no less than 10 AM or no later than 2 PM. And so, you know, you can comfortably legally show up at that time and they're not going to have gotten there at eight o'clock, but you might have another auction that was at a different time spot. And then sometimes there's two different auctions at the same, at the same day. And of course in Texas, it's once every month that they have an auction. It's the first Tuesday of the month. So it just happened this Tuesday and they call it super Tuesday. If you're in states like California, for example, there's auctions going on any day any county throughout the state. It's just whenever the, the trustee has filed and puts it on the log to, to auction. So, you know, you might go on a Tuesday and there's five houses for sale and there's three the next day. And so in times of crunch, when there's a lot of properties, there might be 50 properties in a large county and, or in one city, but like in other counties, there might be only four in the whole county. So just to cut again, again, depends. Now I am seeing less properties on the auction block right now, which is contrary to all the information at the media and the recession, everything you hear. And I don't listen to that. I pay attention to the data because I'm studying the information. It's dictating what direction I'm going to go. So someone asks like, guys, if you have any questions, like uh, feel free to drop both of the chats and we can have uh, Joseph and Ida respond to them. We had Sophia ask, like, as a new investor, how can they work with you guys? Well, you can follow us online. Uh, our Instagram handle is our name. And we do that on purpose because many times that can that can cultivate into additional relationships. Um, if somebody DMs me a quick question I can answer, or somebody wants a phone call, I'm more than glad to talk to someone and share with them some information and point them in the right direction. And 
many times it's just a quick question that can be answered right away. And then uh, sometimes they want a little bit more in-depth information or even how to work with us or the team and would be more than glad to, to assist them. Man, I just want to Yeah, we can schedule a calendar meeting and kind of do that with, with whoever is interested. And we can do a, a virtual meeting just like we're doing this now virtually. Like we can do a virtual meeting and we can share our our process or our what's worked for us and what may we can help you reach your goal. For those who are just joining in as well, we're actually just talking about um how Joseph and Ida are buying auction properties using private money. Um they've been dropping a lot of gems uh, on this episode. We have Sophia asks as well, do you buy occupied or vacant properties only? But we buy both. But the occupied properties, we're going to attempt to buy them at a much lower price point because along with it comes some level of uncertainty as to the repairs needed. And also we may encounter scenarios in which we have to evict. Now, there are situations where we would love to have bought a property where maybe the owner lost it and the tenant was paying rent and they didn't know it was going to foreclosure. And we bought it and introduced ourselves and we said, Hey, we're going to turn this into a rental. Are you interested in continuing your rent? That would be the ideal scenario for both the, the tenant and our company. Cause it's less, we just have to take care of health and safety. I can tell you statistically since 2009, that's never happened. So usually you have somebody in there that will need an eviction or they need some assistance. We may have to help them financially move them out and but you know, that would be the ideal situation, especially if we were trying to find out property to, to, to continue as a rental. Yeah. But that's why it's, it's key to invest in landlord friendly states because the process is much quicker as opposed to in California, it, it takes a long time. So that's why we decided, like Joseph said, we decided to just move our acquisition company to a landlord friendly, you know, state so that we can make the whole process much faster. Shout out to your money work for you, you know, bastard. <laughs> Shout out to Rich. He's also part of the mastermind that we're part of with Joseph and I. Oh, Rich. <laughs> uh, so good meeting you, Rich, last weekend. Oh, man, God. But before we even wrap up, like, what advice would you guys give to any newbie who? Either want to start investing or a new private money lender who's looking to net on their first deal. What advice do you guys have? Okay, you want to start, either? Sure. Get out of your comfort zone. You know, think outside the box, which it's it's hard. I understand. I come from a from a Mexican background. You're you're embedded these traditions. Like you need to be in a secure job that has insurance, all the securities in the world, but they don't tell you that you're 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 stuck there. You don't have the freedom. You don't have the freedom to spend the time with your family. You're on their terms, not your terms. So get out of that mindset. And it's hard. But once you start surrounding yourself with people who have an ultimate goal to get that freedom to be able to live that lifestyle and not be 62 years old and then only have, what, 15 more years to enjoy your life and ride, and drive a Corvette at 67 years old. No, you want to start driving the Corvette right now. You know? Sad. <laughs> And get your investment property to pay for it. Exactly. And get your investment property to pay for it. So it's kind of like, you know, you work your money. You know, don't let anybody else manage your money. You've worked for it so hard. You manage your money. You work for it. 
and just think of the ultimate goal. Yes, it's different. Yes, it's out of the box. It's not something that you're used to. I felt, I felt like, oh my God, like, how am I going to make this work? But I had an existing relationship. I knew life and trust and I knew it was working. And so I went for it. <laughs> so, so for your listeners, Isaiah and I are in a relationship and we have been, but the, the, the story is I, I've known her since she was six years old. And so we've been lifelong friends and she's kind of followed me four years old and, and she's followed me. Um, she's followed my progress. So it was kind of, you know, I'm sure on her end, as she'll share with you, you know, it was easy to see about what I was doing and how I grew. But to add to your question, you know, I've made more money with partners than I ever would have by myself. So I'm a firm believer on partnerships. I love collaborations. I have been in properties and projects where I'm only 2% owner. I am currently a 2% owner of a $78 million project right now that I would not have been a part of if I tried to buy this by myself. So I'm also in, in a variety of partners where I'm a 10% owner and I have other projects where I'm 90% completely reverse. And then I have many properties where I then I are hundred percent of a variety of different projects. What, what has happened though, is that you get the, to scale with the team and with the teams that I have had in the park in the past and the partnerships that I have had in the past. And, and that almost seems like we don't have them now. It's just that we've gone in different ways because of, of states or projects or multifamily, for example, what what happened is that we didn't have five or six people that all had the same skill set. So we had like, like maybe one was really good at digital marketing and one was good with litigation avoidance and someone else was really good at analysis and someone else was really good with raising capital and you had a awesome team there and I'll take 25% of a million dollars coming in every year, then a hundred percent of $50,000. So if you look at it that way, want to get out there. And the other thing is that at the beginning, start off and don't try to make any money. Don't try to make any money. If yeah. I go back and work with a contractor it's like, Hey, I have a good deal. Can you be the guy that just fixes it and, and, and put the money and everything? I don't need to make any money. I just want to watch and learn and absorb what you're doing. So I become a better investor and I'm not going to walk away with any money. I would do that five, six, seven times because you're going to learn so much in those deals. And I see a lot of people try to do everything by themselves and many are successful. Many are burnt out by the first deal. It takes a lot of tenacity when you're by yourself because you have a hundred percent of the weight on your shoulders. So I would definitely say to partner. And if you're a private money lender and you're, you're, you're going to invest in a project, the, the, the top three things is you want to know, like, and trust the individual. And so how are you getting that referral? Are you getting that referral for that deal or that transaction or that investment from someone that you like, you know, like, and trust, or are you directly investing with that individual and what are you investing in? It's very important that someone understand what they're investing in and what the strategy is. Well, we're going to buy it and we're going to fix it and we're going to sell it. Okay. That's pretty simple, but who's going to fix it? Like who's going to actually monitor that and how are you? sell it and have you decided who the agent is when you get like well i don't know we'll figure it out but it's going to be easy don't worry about it well that's not a deal that you want to get invested in mm -hmm. you know as you gain momentum 
you can start deciding exactly what you want and how you want to invest. Like we have a certain buy box of things that we'll invest and we'll bar- partner with. And if somebody says, hey, I got a great deal out in California, I'm like, good for you. And I'm <laughs> doesn't mean I don't find someone that would be the perfect partner for them yeah. that's comfortable with a democratic-controlled, highly regulated, highly overtaxed state. But there's other avenues, right? And so like like you're out in Florida, Felicia, and, and that is a very good state to invest in. But there are certain things about Florida that I don't understand. For example, the flood zones and the floodplain. They're getting worse. Yeah. So if I'm uncomfortable with that, then I might choose to pick a different state like Georgia or Tennessee. But if I still want to learn more about about Florida, what if I what if my research tells me that yeah, it's, it, things are really expensive, but you're buying at 20, 30 cents on the dollar at the auction. Well, I'm gonna pay attention to that. Maybe it's not gonna be a long term hold, but it's great to flip, you know. Or maybe there's a great operator that can do a short term rental. And what if you could go buy it, fix it up, and go to the bank and get your money back? Mm-hmm. And now you don't actually have any money, but you own the property. I don't care if I own 10% of a property in Bel Air. <laughs> you know, it's just how you Great. And if you give yourself the opportunity um, and you do find someone that you want to partner up with and be, and be their private money lender, you can also make the time to schedule like, oh, I want to shadow you. I want to see what your day's like. Kind of like, what do you do? And, and that's another way to give that that potential private money lender that's kind of skeptical, kind of like, okay, what are they really doing? Like they can shadow you, but it would be something that you would have to, you know, coordinate with one another. I think that would be another another way so that they can have that peace of mind also. Mm-hmm. It depends on the person. Yeah, it all goes back to that mindset that, yeah. that wanting to learn. Um, yeah, that's very key. Yeah, but... You guys have so much dumps today. We have so <laughs> now we're now we're excited about buying an auction. Look at us. <laughs> it was give us a call or dad to help you. There's so many things that we can dive deeper into, like just sure. perspective of you guys lending, yeah. lending to each other's LLC. That that was something I wanted us to get into. That is genius. Oh yeah, budget it to me. I said. That is smart. So I think we need to do a whole other episode just about that. Yeah, and using private money and hard money together. Right. It is. It's a lot, but thank you guys so, so much. Thank Betsy for having us, and it was a pleasure. It was amazing for all of our listeners, viewers, just for hand of their handles are shown here at joseph.lopez.investor. And then for Ida is A-I-D-E dot multifamily dot investor. Follow them on Instagram. If you guys have questions, feel free to send them a DM on Instagram. They're also on Facebook as well. Uh, ooh, Sophie just said, please check your IG messages. Sophie's on it. Sophie's on it. Appreciate you for being so active in our chat as well. For all four viewers uh thank you guys for watching don't forget to subscribe to mm-hmm. right to watch I should but again <laughs> yeah. yes thank you so much you guys have been so supportive we've been been feeling the love you know um and we we just want to put out there like we're learning too 
and we we learn as we go and we try to teach as we go as well i mean we we get all these calls all the time about asking about things that now we're like oh my gosh i and that that was such an easy question <laughs> well we can always connect them and say hey we know the perfect person <laughs> no exactly it's a whole pile of ice and no Thank you guys a lot. Thank you for everyone watching, listening. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. If you like this episode, give us a thumbs up, leave a review. And if not, see you guys next time. Next week, Monday at 5 p.m., same time, same place here at Money Mondays with your host, Thousand Bets. Bye, guys. Bye. Oh.